mention why when we get to the sermon part, but um, Book of Psalms, please, 118. I'm going to read the whole psalm, but really, um, I think my purpose will be mainly to stick in first five verses, maybe first ten, something like that. But this is the holy word of our holy God. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say his loving kindness is everlasting. For my distress, I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting, the salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected, he has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, what a wonderful God that you are. Beside you there is no other. And what a wonderful word this is. What great encouragement to us, especially to those of us struggling with difficulty and distress and enemies and persecution weakness, all the other things that beset your children here in our pilgrimage. Lord, you are the great bomb in Gilead that you give us rejoicing instead of um, sadness. And um, we, we thank you for that. May your word revive us in the living word of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I think, um, you, you know what eating crow is? Eating crow is when you, you say something I will do something, I will not do something, and then five seconds later you're like, oh, by the way, the thing that I said. Primarily since I'm a series preacher, I start in a book, Ezekiel 1.1, and I plow through the book, for instance. And we have been in the Ezekiel series, and I want to say we're in, I don't know, 
sermon 20, something like that, and maybe chapter 16, 17. And it's always been my purpose to start and plow right through. And I mentioned maybe a few sermons ago that I was not intending (laughs) in stopping in any way. I was just going to go right through. And I made a big point of it, which God has me eating from that it's kind of a, a it, it's a sad testimony on the minister if he has to um, kind of back up and regroup. And since the Lord of God, the Lord has inspired the word with one one and plows through a book, that's what I think we should do. Well, I think over the years, if I've been here 20 and a half years, I've only had to break that desire one time. In the book of um, Deuteronomy, I stopped stop midway. And that was because... Um, Pastorally, I didn't feel that I was able to treat some of the passages going forward. I, I didn't think I could preach it to the edification of God's people. It would have been easier for a Bible study. The book of Ezekiel, and I'm just going to say this, why we're not in Ezekiel tonight, and we're going to be in the Psalms, maybe for a couple of weeks. Um, not because I'm unable to address certain things pastorally, but for pastoral reasons. The book of Ezekiel is judgment, 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 judgment. First, 20-something passages, uh, chapters, have to do with the judgment of, of the Jews and the judgment of the nations. And then woven throughout all of those judgment um, chapters is a, is a string of mercy. It's there in almost every chapter. And you know that I've been trying to bring that out. Well, um, even as I, I, I pray and labor to not be redundant, particularly not redundant, but maybe excessive in one theme, I think it would be help, helpful for, for us, and then certainly for me, because I'm also, I preach to myself first. I thought it might be helpful to take a break from our judgment sermons and maybe take, um, I don't know, two, three, four weeks max. And I've done this, I, I, maybe I've done it one more time, and look at something expressly encouraging. So I, I promise I'm not being a weenie. I will get back. I do need your prayers, though. If you're familiar with the book of Ezekiel, if you think that chapter 16 was hard, there's one more chapter in, in the book of Ezekiel that my wife asked me, are you going to read that chapter? And um, I think I'm going to read it, but it's somewhat a gross chapter. Um, so I do need, I do need prayer to, to uh, continue on. Now, so we're here. Now, particularly, I want to consider some things which are encouraging and we have um, his loving kindness, the Lord, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his loving kindness is everlasting. The Bible, all of us should be familiar with the Bible if we're older than five or ten, certainly. Um, the Bible is God's word, and it's inspired by God, written by various authors, and it has various genres, various subjects, various purposes to those various subjects. So there are ports of, uh, portions of God's word that are meant to correct us, so they can... Um, they can chastise us with a word, as it were. And this comes from 2 Timothy three fourteen through 17, uh, correct, rebuke, edify, those kind of things. So we can come to portions of God's word like we've been in, which is correction, correction, correction. And God means to correct, which is why we read uh, from, from the, the confession. So faith believes all of God's word. We tremble at the threats and we rejoice at the promises. And there are other part, parts of God's word that are meant not so much to correct or chastise or rebuke or warn, those kind of things, but there are other portions of God's word that are merely meant to encourage and uplift. And if I know my heart a little bit, and maybe I've been watching God's people for a few years, 
Is it not true, beloved, that most of us need a little bit of encouragement along the way as believers? This world can be a discouraging place. It can be an encouraging. We just had a wonderful wedding. That was encouraging. But the world can be a hard place in which to live. And then it could be a hard place in which to live happily. And we don't want to be morose and represent our Christ poorly. So there are portions of God's word, which is why we should hide God's word into our hearts, that we should go to and regularly apply to ourselves as in a medicinal way, I would say, to encourage ourselves. I, I prayed some of them in my pastoral prayer because they're in, their, in my mind. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. No, never. Right? Isn't that Hebrews 13? And then Jesus says, and lo, I am with you, what? Always, even to the end of the age. And the love, the love of God, God is love. We've passed from death to life, all of those things. So we should, we, sh- we should fill up our minds with these things. It's the practice at my house. I work and come home and, and maybe I'll go for a walk and my wife and I have dinner and then we have worship and then we watch a 1930s or 40s on, on the YouTube. And we were watching something yesterday and some, some things expressly Christian happened to us and Christianly things, Bible things. And I said, you know, I just don't want to watch the 1930s like Jackie, uh, not Jack, Jackie Chan, Charlie Chan. Um, let's watch a documentary on a missionary. And we did. We watched it on a fellow uh, C.T. Studd, Baptist missionary. Very interesting fellow. Um, I was more edified. And, and you think, well, why don't I do this more often? Why don't I fill up my mind with things which are edifying rather than trying to figure out um, Charlie Chan and so on? I would argue one of the most encouraging books of the Bible um, is not really one book, it's five books, is Psalms which is why we're here tonight. Um, it's my practice, since I'm the minister and I construct the sermons, it's my practice to kind of personally, um, I live in the Psalms, kind of like Luther-like. I, I can't hold Luther's bags, but Luther-like. Luther loved the Psalms. The book of Psalms is essentially a collection of, of prayers, is what it is, and prayer songs. So really, it's the experience of spirit-wrought Spirit-inspired, believe, true believers, um, and it's their expression of faith in in the Lord. It's um, it's experimental theology 101. What what does a true Christian look like, sound like when they're high, when they're low, all of those kind of things. So it's very experimental, and which is why it's it's so lasting in the church. So in order to encourage ourselves in the Lord. Um, we come here to this book, which I would argue is a book of encouragement, uh, and the, the Psalms. And Psalm 118 particularly fits the bill, especially with the refrain, which is really my purpose. My purpose is not, because since it's a topical, I'm not going to unpack the whole the whole um, Psalm. Essentially, I want to really look at the refrain. Give thanks to the Lord for his good, his loving kindness is everlasting. And even if you look at the refrain plus the rest of the the, the, um, the psalm, one of the things that you're going to find which is so comforting and it dispels fears, one of the reasons is, is very God-focused. Very, very God-focused. Now, you'll have the words of Christ. You'll have later in the psalm, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes. I said this every week as a Roman Catholic. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All of those things with the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. That's in here. Um, uh, those kind of things. You have the cornerstone rejected. Also, 
it's it's messianic but this particular this particular psalm opens with a praise of a god and maybe if i could just back up and define what praise is uh, hyphen adoration um it's very very closely associated with thanks but i i think if we were going to be persnickety it has to do with something of the attributes or, or, or the names or the works of God. Um, oh God, you're God of love. Oh God, you're omniscient. Oh God, you're everywhere um, present. Or some, If I'm on the mountain, you're there. The valley, you're there. And then, oh God, I thank you, r- related to that. Um, but we have a, expressly um, praise or adoration of the Lord. I would argue, perhaps as Christians, if we were to listen to our own prayers and then quantify them, I would argue that our prayers were filled with more petitions and less praises. And that's myself, and that's probably, if you were honest with yourself, that's probably true. And I'm not picking on that. And one of the reasons is we're exceedingly needy people. And I'm very much uh, uh, of the mind that if you need anything, what does the Bible say? If you need anything, take it to your Lord and, and ask. And, I, and I'm not the kind of person that thinks, well, the little things, leave them aside. God's busy. Only take the big things. No, he's your heavenly father. He loves you very much. You want your children, you want your little grandchildren to come and say, you know, father, grandfather. And so certainly petitions come very natural because we're needy. But this, is, this opens with praise and then hyphen thanksgiving. And this is the reason why it's so encouraging. This is going to be a basic sermon. Our encouragement in the praise of the Lord, or the praise of the Lord encourages us, something like that. This is more Godward, less manward. My wife and I mentioned we were somewhere the other day, and we were having dinner at Jocko's. It looks out on the water. It's very beautiful. And then you have the, the, the sports place. And I don't know what we're talking about, something politics not politics but what's going on in the world and i'm like let's just have the beautiful dinner and look at the beautiful water and i felt myself getting anxious thinking of the stuff i'm not saying that we should not think of the stuff there's a time and a place to think of the stuff but it was very anxiety producing to me thinking of the stuff thinking what's happening and i can't control it no i I can't control it and when we're feeling anxious What's going to happen? Are we going to be locked up again? Is all of what will happen? What, what? Here's what we should do, beloved. Look away from man. He, he says, trusting in the Lord is better than princes. Look away from the situation. Look to God in Christ. And you think, well, that just seems so, so simple. Yes, I agree. It does seem so simple. Colossians, what, three is simple. Set your mind on what? things above don't set your mind on what things below well boy that that's ridiculous no it's not ridiculous it's the inspired word of god if we did it we would do this more we would cry less and pray more we would do this give thanks to the lord if we just looked away if we just refocused our mind and took it off of man and put our mind in our heart on God. And if you are a believer, you can say you have the ability to do this. In Christ, you can do all things. God has given us both the ability to look to him and the inclination to look to him. But we're kind of, we still have the flesh and we still live 
with 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 a with a, a sin cursed world, and so we have all of these competing voices and forces and so on. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, you can take yourself by the hand, as it were, and say, "Stop! Stop! 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 Look away. Look to God. Look to Christ. Ask the Holy Spirit. All th- 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 this is all here. Very very basic. But the psalmist praises and thanks God because he's looking at God. And so what he's essentially saying is that God is the object of his love. God is the object of his adoration. God is the object of his hope. And even those words, love, adoration, hope, satisfaction, even those words begin to elevate our hearts and our minds because ordinarily, when we're low, which is what this is bringing this believer out of being in a state of um, difficulty, when we're low, we're thinking dark thoughts. We, have, we use dark words. It won't work. I'm a failure. Thus and so. We'll lose. Those kind of things. But when we start to say, well, God is my hope. God is my rock. God is immovable. God is above my enemies. This isn't... This isn't fake it till you make it. This isn't the power of positive affirmation. None of those things. None of those things which are essentially Christian. We we are living upon the word of God because it's the word of God. It brings us into increased friendship or fellowship with God. Now, you might say, well, this is just a species. You're just preaching a species of whistling by the graveyard, just trying to say good things to yourself when you you don't really mean them, or to, to walk around saying, there's no weeds in my garden, there's no weeds in my garden, there's no weeds in my garden. Is that what the psalmist is doing? When the psalmist says, praise, um, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. O Israel, say his loving kindness is everlasting. Is he denying the existence of difficulties? No, I don't think so. Look over at verse 5. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. And then later he's going to talk about all the nations surrounded me. I have enemies. So no, I'm, I'm not preaching uh, a species of uh, optimistic thinking and denying reality. The Bible says that we should rejoice with those who rejoice and then do what with the people that mourn? We should mourn with the people that mourn. But I would argue, beloved, and I'm going to preach to myself, perhaps we would mourn, in, there's a proper mourning and there's an improper mourning. There's a time to be sad and there's a time not to be sad. We can stoke improper mourning by focusing on the wrong thing. And we could alleviate our own sadness if we would look to God and Christ more. And so what this particular psalmist is doing is he acknowledges that he has enemies. And the reason he's not downcast is he sees his enemies through theocentric or Christocentric lenses. He sees his enemies in light of the fact that he is owned by God. He belongs to God and God belongs to him. And so it, it, it diminishes. What's the book that was written by, I don't even know, I suppose he was a believer, when man is big and God is small or something like that. The answer for that problem is, is not to make God big because God is already immense. It's to consider the immensity 
the infinitude, the internality of God, to look at the godness of God. I've argued this before. Um, if you want to feel better, take out our confession with, on one hand and our, our, your Bible on the other hand. Open up to chapter 2, which is the, the chapter on God. It's, all, it's a short chapter. It's got three, three paragraphs. And then read all of the scripture proofs on, on God. He's most this, most holy, most merciful, most loving. And when you, you go through that, what will be the inclination of your heart? Oh, give thanks to God, for he is so good. Does that mean that there's not really a war with, with, in Ukraine? No, there's a war. Does that not mean that there's going to be another plague pretty quick here? The monkeypox? No, it's coming. They're already t- telling us it's coming. Does it mean all? No, no. But what does it mean? That our God is above those things. And he is for us and we are for him. That's what it means. And I would argue even a, a little bit when we look at the praise of this believer and the thanks of this believer and then when we get to the body of the, 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 the prayer where he acknowledges his particular enemies and they don't seem very small, they seem very great. I would argue that even the enemies work to produce the praise of the Lord and the thanks of the Lord. What do I mean by that? There's a, a place in the book of Romans, you know it. I think sometimes we misuse it. I know we misuse it. It's a Romans 8, is it 828? All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. Something like that. That can be misused. And beloved, remember we talked about this morning in Sunday school that there, we should always share the truth about Jesus. But there's a right way to share the truth of, of Christ depending on who you're in front of, what time it is. If someone has just lost a loved one, let's say a Muslim mother lost a, a son, let's say. You know, that might not be the time to do certain, take her to certain Bible places. It might be the time to just cry with a woman. You see what I mean? So there's a right time, there's a right way, there's a right place. And so when we look at all things work together for the good, I think we're probably only going to understand that passage when, when we're looking backwards at at time when we're in heaven. But my point with that is just this. He, this man has enemies. And what, what do those enemies produce in this particular fellow? Prayer. Prayer. So the enemies drive the believer to God in Christ. The enemies, the distresses, the sorrows, they drive us to our knees. They, 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 they separate us from uh, from other things. They take our tr- attraction, our attention off of the other things and they refocus them on God. That's why all things work together for the good. It, it, it points us to God. It brings us to God. It makes us do business with God in prayer. I've said this probably ad nauseum. Prayer is, is, way ha- is, is probably the hardest thing to do in the Christian walk. Prayer. Prayer is where... The power comes from the intimacy with our Lord. And so when we, we think, why am I so anemic as a Christian? Where's my joy? Where's my power? Because you're not praying. I'm not picking on anybody. I already know this is true, right? Quantify your prayers. Take a stopwatch. We, it, it's picayune. And if, if, if the intimacy with your wife, husbands with your wife, if you never talk with your wife, you don't talk to her, are you going to have an intimate marriage? No, you're not going to have an intimate marriage. But if you talk to your wife, you're going to know your wife. And you love her even more. And, and, and so too with prayer. 
And so God in his kindness, because we're little children, I have grandchildren, four of them, and the little kids get sidetracked. And we are little kids and we get sidetracked. And God says, no, I want you to come back and pray to me. So look, look at what the enemies do for the psalmist. They get him on his knees. I would argue we pray so much more fervently, so much more honestly, so much more intimately when we are in the crucible. I, I know that it's true. I, kn- I know that it's true. When, when, the, when a believer, a real believer, I'm not talking about just someone that's a professional Christian without possessing the Holy Spirit, having Christ, a real Christian. When the hard times come, what happens? Oh, God. Oh, God. Well, you say, well, that's a petition. Yes, I understand. That's a lamentation. I understand that as well. You bring your petition. You bring your groan. You, you, you bring your, oh, God, help me. And what will happen after a while? Now you're, you're in the presence of God. You're praying. You're speaking with God. You're not looking at the problem. You're looking at God. What will happen after a while? This will. God, you're so good. God, thank you for never leaving me. Thank you for never forsaking me. Thank you that you hold my enemies in, in your hand. Thank you that you hold me in your hand. Enemies, distress, opposition drives us to our knees drives us to petition the Lord, drives us to unburden ourselves, which in turn will produce this. Well, you say, I never get there. That could be for a number of reasons, but there's, a, there, there's one very simple reason. You stop too soon. You stop to praying too soon. The Puritans were very keen to say, many of us stop praying before we even really pray. Do you know what I mean by that? You stop praying even before you really start to pray. It means your heart's not in it. You're not engaged. Again, to use the husband and wife picture. If you're talking to your wife with a newspaper, or no one does a newspaper, but a newspaper in front of your face while you're looking out the window, does your wife think that you're talking to her? No. Are you receiving anything back from your wife? No. Why? You're not having a dialogue with her. Sometimes in our prayers... We're supposedly talking to God with a newspaper in front of our face, looking out the window at our truck. What's happening? Nothing's happening. You haven't started to pray. So sometimes we stop praying before our hearts are engaged. And if we could pray long enough for our hearts to be engaged, I would argue perhaps we would see more of this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his loving kindness is everlasting. So our brother believer here is encouraged because he's looking at the things that discourage him in a in a Godward or eternal perspective. I would I would recommend to your reading perhaps first Corinthians chapter four, perhaps second Corinthians chapter four. All of us in this room tonight have various crosses that God has laid on us. All of us do. Can we go through life saying, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his loving kindness is everlasting, even with the cross that God has given us to carry? Can we? I would argue that we can. I would argue that we can. And when we look at our brother, father, the Apostle Paul in the faith, he also had crosses to to carry. Why? Why could he carry them with hope and confidence 
enjoy this. Why? He, he tells us the secret in, in 1 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians. He says, I don't look at the things that are seen. They're temporal. I see these things through the lenses of eternity. My mom, I wasn't raised Bible believer, but she had a saying. It was a common proverb, and she would say it regularly. In a hundred years, what will it matter? In a hundred years, what will it matter? Many of the things, most of the things, beloved, that we get very anxious about, even our enemies, in a hundred years, what will they matter? I mentioned the documentary by C.T. Studd. He has a, he, he's a, he's a, he was a cricketer, a British guy in the 1800s. And he was, his father was rich, and he gave everything away to be a missionary. He was prolific, a poem writer. And he has a poem called One Life. And he says, One life to live, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Beloved, if, if we could look at what the psalmist is looking at, which is God, eternity, our relationship with God, we, we, we could do those things. We could live a victorious life. And I don't even mean in a silly way, but this is what we're looking at. We're looking at a man who's a super overcomer because he looks at the right one. And my primary desire is to look at the business of his loving kindness, that his loving kindness is everlasting. That's what's so encouraging, at least to me personally. That's that one word in Hebrew, hased. I think it was either William Tyndale or Miles Coverdale, I think, maybe Tyndale. He's the one that coined that phrase, loving kindness. It's him. Now, the word has said in Hebrew has the notion of a bowing down, a condescending in order to give something. What, what, what theological, biblical truth is being taught there? A stooping down of the superior to the inferior to bless the inferior. What, what, what's the one word? Grace. Grace, grace, grace. And what does grace mean? Gift, gift, gift. Not 90% and then a 10% discount. Gift, gift. Why is God so good? Because his grace is everlasting, like real grace. This is why I'm against the federal vision and all the other things, which is just a return to the church of my youth, Romanism. It really is. It really is. Where it's not pure grace. It's not pure gift, gift, gift. Only the person that could say, God, God, God has given me himself, given me himself. You say, we have to believe. We read it. Yes, he's given me faith. You have to repent. We read it. He's given me repentance. Everything he requires of me, he gives to me. Remember when we were kids, we did this, even in the church of my youth. When they passed the plate, it was a, it was a basket on a stick. And so the, the ushers would come and they would run the stick with the basket down the aisle. My dad gave whatever he gave. I never knew. And he would give us kids a quarter. My dad would give us a quarter and we would throw it in the basket. We're, we have been given a quarter and we throw it in the basket. Who's, the quarter belongs to our dad. The basket belongs to our dad. Everything belongs to our Father in heaven. We call that grace. Beloved, it, it's, it's easy to say sola gracia. We believe grace alone. Boy, we, I think it was Calvin that said we're legalistic little critters. We're idol-making little critters. I, I mentioned it this morning. 
even saying, I believe it's pure gift, we really want to put a little of ourselves in. When we put a little of ourselves in our own salvation, it is a very depressing business, beloved. Because did I sin? Did I obey? Did I sin too much? Did I obey too little? Am I safe? Is there assurance? Here's a man that says, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that I'm loved. I know that I'm forgiven. I know he protects me. I know there's a certitude. Why? Because it's all grace. It's all gift. Pure gift. And then the second thing, if I could unpack the idea of has said that loving kindness, it's been translated. Some of your Bibles may translate it variously with these kind of uh, words. Uh, mercy, goodness, Kindness, sometimes hyphenated, loving kindness, loving mercy, that kind of a notion. It's uh, along the lines of divine um, pity, divine favor. Um, a pity is a sympathetic sorrow. And the Bible tells us that um, God pities us as a father pities his, his beloved children. Again, just to encourage ourselves in the face of opposition and difficulty and all of these things, the psalmist repeats it over and over again. That has said that that divine pity is on me. And in the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the only God that is, he has divine pity on me because he's my father and he considers me to be his child. If, if you mums or dads, and, and this has no time limit. There's no time limit on this. My mother was 79 when she died. She was worried about us kids right up to the day that she died. She was worried about us kids watching her die. My mom was worried about us, us kids watching her die. I'm so sorry, kids. For what, mom? Well, I'm dying and it's making you cry. So there's never a time limit on a, on a mom's love and pity upon a broken child, is there? there? There isn't. And God, like that, has loving pity on his needy children. What, what a comforting thought. What a comforting thought. And he comforts himself by this. And not only is there a notion of sympathetic sorrow, but the idea of, of goodness um, my wife and I having our, our evening worship and there have been some distressing things and of course you have distressing things and I remember I posed the question to my wife last week in family worship can we say together even in the face of things which are sorrowful and let's say God did not remit them that God is still good can you say that it, let's say the cross that you have or the thorn that you have you say to God three times, Oh, Jesus, take it away. Oh, Jesus, please. Let's say he says to you, No. My grace for you is sufficient. In your weakness, my power is made manifest. Can you still say, can you? Real question. God is good. And he's good to me. Can you say that? He alludes to it and then later in Psalm 119, the psalmist there says, it was good to me when I was afflicted. It was good. 
It was good. Um, this has said is the goodness of God. Beloved, if, if you are convinced that God is good and God is good for you, you will be more encouraged, even in the difficulties, to take the father to a child or the father to, to a mother or a father. If the child is convinced that the mother or the father always has the child's welfare, always will do good for the child, if, if the child is, even in times where the, the child is per, perplexed, but my, my father will do good. My father will do good for me. Well, you don't know how it will work. No, I don't. But I know that my, I trust that my father will. Beloved, that's encouragement. And then my favorite is um, the concept encompassed in the Hesed from William Tyndale's word, loving kindness, and also the idea of loving mercy. Um, the Bible says God is love. First John chapter 4. I promise you I'm still Reformed. I'm still Calvinist. I'm still a high Calvinist. I'm Westminsterian. All of those hyphen, hyphen, hyphen things. You think, Pastor John, you're, you're getting a little bit soft in your old age. I actually have lost church members <laughs> who have come to me over the years and said, I liked you in your early ministry because you were fiery. I was a fastball uh, pitcher early on in my ministry. Every sermon of mine was a hundred mile an hour fastball and I was hitting you right off the head with it. And I had a hundred people in this room <laughs> as a fastball preacher and I'd yell at you. And I admit, I'm definitely softer over the years. Definitely softer. And the reason I'm definitely softer is God is so gentle and kind to us. Is he not, beloved? Is, is our God not exceedingly tender, exceedingly loving. Is he not? If you get to the end of your life and you're not more tender than the beginning of your life, something's wrong. Something's wrong. If life has not tenderized you to be tender in God, something's wrong. The Bible says God is love. And how do I know he's love? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him has is everlasting life. And then what, what's the refrain of our life? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And I'm going to end with my last thing that I, I take encouragement, and I hope that we take encouragement. The, the goodness, the pity, the love, the grace, it's the notion of mercy. I mentioned it this morning in Sunday school, I, I mentioned to one of the brothers, so genuine, well, what have I been here, 20 and a half years? When I, when I look at men that are potential office bearers, what I think makes a good office bearer, it doesn't matter, elder or deacon, preeminently it's mercy for me. It's mercy. So you, you want them to know the confession in the Bible? Of course, of, of course, that, that's, 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 that's uh, taken for granted. But it's mercy. And what is mercy, beloved? And this is what he's singing about. What is mercy? Mercy is all of those other things that we've talking, talked about. But it's dispensed upon the undeserving. Healthy people don't need mercy. Righteous people don't meet, meet, need mercy. Sinners need mercy. Guilty criminals 
need mercy. Oh, beloved. I always, I always literally shudder when I see people, I want justice, I want that, law, law. I always shudder. Mercy. You are guilty. I am guilty. You deserve death. I, I deserve death. You should be damned. I, I should be damned a thousand times over. But our God extends mercy. Instead of our death, he places it upon his dear son. Instead of our damnation, we have, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Mercy on broken, ill-deserving sinners. And God forgives all of our sins, all, every believer. Have you ever had this happen to you? That you're walking along, praying along, in some sin that you've done, that you try really hard your whole life to push out of your head, God brings it to your memory. And you, you half can't even walk because you're so ashamed of yourself. Have you ever had that happen? I have. What's the answer to that, beloved? Mercy. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. His loving kindness, His mercy, all of our sins as believers, separated from us in Christ, as far as the east is from the west, never to be brought against us judicially, never. There's no condemnation. Oh, beloved. And then the enemies come, and what do they say? We're going to kill you. And what's the worst that could happen? They kill us. But the Lord Jesus Christ says they can only kill the body. They can't separate you from any of this. That's the Romans 8. That's the Romans 8. Nothing. Nothing. Because of this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And his loving kindness towards you in Christ is everlasting. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.